0: You're listening to the 10x9 podcast. As you know, 10x9 has moved to Zoom until we can return to the black box. And one of the unexpected delights of going online is the international audience and storytellers who've joined us. Canada, USA, all parts of Ireland and Britain, Europe and India. We'll have a small sample of that international lineup for you on this podcast. So in case you're wondering... I'm Paul Dorn, and in 2011, Padraig Otoma and I started 10 by 9 in Belfast. It's very simple, nine people with up to ten minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. You can find all our events and all the things you need to know about us and more at our website 10 9com Now, there are three stories in this podcast, and our first is from the wonderful Helen Killick. Helen is a regular at the Black Box, but this story is set in the exotic land of Australia, and she told it when the theme was fear on October 30th.
1: I'm suddenly awake. There's a sound of scratching very close to my left ear. It's pitch dark and I'm lying on the ground in the Australian desert. I have no idea what time it is and all is quiet apart from the scratch, scratch, scratch of claws in the dirt beside me. What creature of the night has woken me from my fitful sleep? Should I open my eyes and assess what kind of predator I might be up against? Or maybe I should keep my eyes shut, play dead and hope this thing goes away. I am out of my comfort zone. I have a serious dose of imposter syndrome. I have the desert dust below me and the unfamiliar southern sky above and nothing but a flimsy sleeping bag to protect me from whatever is sharpening its claws beside me. Three weeks previously, I'd arrived in Australia from Scotland. I was 21 and ready for adventure. At first, I stayed with my aunt in Melbourne, gently adjusting to life down under. After a week, she started scanning the morning paper for jobs she thought I could do with my working holiday visa. She wasn't convinced that my plan of busking around Australia with my fiddle was a good one. Doesn't sound very safe, she said. By the time I emerged for breakfast each morning she'd circled a few job adverts and left the paper obviously beside my cereal bowl. Shop assistant, restaurant staff, childcare, usual gap year suggestions. And then one morning, a small box in the jobs section had clearly caught her attention as it was circled not just once, but several times. Safari cook. It's perfect, she said. Make a bit of money and see the country at the same time. I wasn't sure my limited experience of summer jobs would qualify me for such a role. Serving chips in the canteen of the Mitchell and Tire Factory in Aberdeen didn't really count as being an actual cook. And as for safari, the closest I got to safari was the bus journey across the Isle of Mull when you could spot Highland cows or a golden eagle if you were lucky. But somehow I found myself making the call which resulted in an interview with the boss of a bus company who ran safaris for school pupils travelling from Melbourne into the red centre of Australia. There were two of us in for the job, me from Scotland and another candidate from England. I'm sure the other person was much more qualified than me but they didn't get the job, I did. And the boss told me he'd given me the job because I wasn't a POM. And if you're not familiar with the term it's an insult directed towards English people by Australians and the boss didn't like English people. I was a Scot and that was completely different. Thanks to his casual racism, I was now a safari cook. And a few days later, I was accompanying a group of 30 girls from a private school on a 10-day bus safari to Alice Springs and the boss himself was one of the two drivers. My kitchen was a trailer which trundled along behind the bus which thankfully included a safari cook folder with details of menus and enough food for the first few days. There were some long hours of serious driving to get to the first camping stop when my safari cooking skills would be put to the test. While the girls put up their tents, I got the evening meal ready. Burgers on the hot plate, salad from the fridge, out onto the fold-out table, baps and butter. I could do this. So far, so good. And after dinner, the girls washed up their dishes and disappeared into their tents. And it was at that point I wondered what the sleeping arrangements were for safari cooks. The boss threw me a sleeping mat. We don't have time for tents, he said. Just find a spot and roll out your bed. But what if it rains? And he pointed to the now empty luggage compartments of the bus. The perils of sleeping out seemed not so bad, given the alternative might be sharing a luggage compartment with big, snorry, casually racist bus drivers. But still, this was Australia, land of creepy-crawlies and snakes. So I picked a spot and wriggled into my sleeping bag and pulled the drawstring as tight as I could around my eyes and nose and peeked out at the southern stars all night long. Early the next morning, the boss made sure I was up before the campers to have breakfast ready. The lack of tent made sense. There was no time for such luxuries and so we journeyed on into the desert. I perched on the wee seat that folds down at the front of the bus and watched the landscape change gradually from green to red. The drivers were old hands and they helped out when I got a bit frazzled in the kitchen, even the boss, and I got by, but deep down I knew I wasn't impressing anybody with my safari cook skills. Every night, once everyone was tucked up in their safe and cosy tents, I rolled out my mat and tried to sleep out under the stars. I woke in the mornings with red dust in my nose and hair and a deep fear that this might be the day I'd be found out. And now here I am, an exhausted, pretend safari cook, lying in the darkness in the desert, my sleeping bag tightly fastened with some fearsome creature scraping at the dirt around me. I lie very still. The scratching stops, but I know it's still there. Maybe getting ready to pounce. So I decide to open my eyes. And in the dark, I make out the face of some kind of large dog looking at me. Not a friendly doe-eyed Labrador face like my dog at home far, far away on the other side of the world, but a scraggy, feral, wild-eyed canine face with big pointy ears, a foxy nose and a toothy grin. I know enough about Australian wildlife to know that I'm looking into the face of a dingo. I do not know enough about Australian wildlife to know what to do next. Are dingoes really dangerous? Do they eat people? I've heard some stories. Will they attack unprovoked? Do I have any safari cook scraps handy to distract? How much protection is there in a two season sleeping bag? Can I even extricate my arms to defend myself? How do I get this knot undone? How quickly could I wriggle away caterpillar style if I had to? What am I doing here? Why am I lying in the desert pretending to be a safari cook anyway? The dingo stares while my mind races and then the dingo turns and disappears into the darkness for a moment joining the drivers in the luggage bin bedroom is quite appealing but only for a moment and i decide to stay put i lie awake again until the dawn eyes wide open counting the stars in the southern sky waiting for the dingo to return maybe with friends But morning comes and we safari on towards the metropolis of Alice Springs. Our last journey with the schoolgirls is to the airport where they board a plane for Melbourne and their comfy beds, only a few hours away. We drive the bus back, 1500 miles in a one -er. Once back with my aunt, I pack away the sleeping bag and bring out the fiddle. My career as a safari cook is over it is.
0: You were quite the adventurer in your youth, Helen. Thanks so much for that story. I so wanted to do a Meryl Streep dingo thingy, but accents aren't my strong point. And if you want to see Helen tell that story, it's on our YouTube channel, along with all our previous Zoom events. Also, if you want to keep up with all things 10x9 wherever you are in the world, follow our social media feeds. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and of course, on Instagram. And if you'd like to tell a story of 10x9, Go along to the guidelines page on our website and get in touch. We are always looking for storytellers. Now let's go to Canada for our next story, and it's first timer, Kevin Macons. Kevin told this from his home in Hamilton, Ontario, on October twenty first when the theme was the last time.
2: My wife and I got married when we were twenty years old, and it should have been a disaster. We met in a small Christian university where college bonding consisted not of drinking all night and making it with strangers, but icebreaker games and mediocre Bible college. Uh, We became friends on the first day of school. We were dating by the second year and by some combination of true love and religious guilt over making out all the time, we were married by our fourth year. After graduation, we wanted to move into the downtown of our post-industrial city. At the time, Hamilton, Ontario had been ravaged by decades of neglect and unemployment. Many in neighboring Toronto, hello, Stuart, considered it damned, affectionately referring to it as the armpit of Ontario. But we had seen another side of the city. You had to slow down and get close to smell what made that armpit so special. Grassroots community ownership and that scrappy underdog spirit and The kind of resilience a suburban kid like me had just never encountered before. We ended up settling on a tiny house that backed onto a factory loading dock. The old brick walls were porous to the neighborhood sounds and scents. In our case, it was unceasing reggae music paired with the distinct smell of dope. On moving day, my little cousin observed that our street looked a lot like a city she'd visited on her mission trip to Honduras because there were, and I quote, kids running around without shoes on, and lots of stray cats. And the thing is, she wasn't even wrong. (laughs) She just didn't see what we were learning to see, how an ordinary street littered with post-war housing was also a living organism, alive with drink and dance, song and tears, prayers and laughter, the mystery of outdated wiring and brittle plaster walls somehow becoming to us flesh and blood, the slow incarnation of a house into a home. Years later, we once again felt the pull to move, not out of the city, but a couple of blocks over to a neighborhood we'd begun to engage with. And the tension for us was what to do with this first home. The thought of selling it to strangers who might flip it for a quick buck or end up being slum landlords felt morally irresponsible in such a contested neighborhood. Our answer came to us in the form of some good friends. And they agreed to buy it off us in a private sale, ensuring that good neighbors would continue to reside in the house and saving us all thousands of dollars in real estate fees. And they loved the old house with all of its quirk, the cracked plaster walls, the turn of the century brickwork, and most of all the intricate hardwood floors just lovingly crafted over a hundred of years ago. And we loved that it freed us up to get aggressive in our bidding for a new house. We had lost a bunch of bidding wars before we finally decided to get reckless and make our offer without conditions. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, it's hard to know what translates across the globe. Around here, a no conditions offer means that you are buying the house. No ifs, ands, or buts. As soon as the offer is accepted, the, by the other side the deal is done, whether or not you're able to secure financing or even sell your old home. A no conditions purchase is like free falling without a parachute or sex without a condom. You'll get where you want to go, but you could end up with more than you bargained for. In the end, for us, the risk paid off. We were able to purchase this beautiful old home right by the water. It needed to be gutted and renovated, but thank God we'd have the money from our first home to get it all done. A few weeks before moving day, as the paperwork was resolving and the main floor was filling with boxes, we visited my wife's parents' house for the weekend. One last getaway before renovations would just consume our lives. But the last night when we pulled in after the weekend away, something fell off. And as I went to open the door, uh, I heard the sound of something. It sounded like static or like someone running a washing machine. And I had never heard anything quite like it because I had never before heard the sound of thousands and thousands of gallons of water flooding through every floor of our house, soaking through the second floor carpet and cascading like a waterfall in spring down the staircase. The flood settled on the main floor, but it didn't even stop its journey there. Instead, it was circling multiple small drains around the room, pushing right through the antique hardwood floors before forming a knee high wading pool in the basement. And at first I was just frozen in place, completely bewildered by the scene before me. And I snapped out of it and tried to run upstairs to find the source of the flood, which was unexpected. Um, Apparently when we left the house for the weekend, we turned off the air conditioning, which meant that the tension rod in the shower that holds up the curtain shifted with the change in temperature eventually falling to the ground and hitting that little piece of tubing that connects the water source to the cistern of the toilet and shattering that brittle little piece of plastic that connects it all together, resulting in three days of cold water projectile vomiting onto every inch of our house. And my brain was trying to pierce it all together, but I didn't have any time to think about it. I had to find... The shutoff valve, so I sprinted full speed down the stairs to the basement, but I slipped on the tile floors and cracked my shin into a nearby coffee table and yelled out, shit. And in a hurry of panic, I waded through the basement before plunging my hands into the frigid water and turning off the water source. And then like a true adult, completely in over his head, I called my parents and just screamed maniacally. I just started screaming it's gone it's gone and they were like what what is it it's the toilet thingy broke and now everything is gone and on the other line my mom was just begging me for context and i yelled back the house is flooded <gasps> she gasped the hardwood floors <laughs> And it's kevin she started kevin get some towels and i looked around the house and witnessed the water pouring through the ceiling and down the plaster walls. And I just kept repeating to myself, kind of coaching myself, towels, towels. And then I screamed to no one in particular at the top of my lungs, we don't have any towels, which isn't true at all. Like we're normal people with a whole bunch of towels. But in this moment I had gone completely off the deep end. I was all out of emotional towels, you know? (laughs) And I sprinted up to the linen closet, I grabbed everything I could, and I ran back down the waterfall stairs before slipping again on the tile and bashing the same shin in the same place on the same coffee table. Shit! I yelled out at the top of my lungs and I attempted to save the floors. I really did, but it was no use. I just sort of threw the towels down into an inch of water and they instantly absorbed and it accomplished nothing. It was all hopeless. And my wife and I just held hands Looking at this situation, our faces soaked with cold water and salty tears as the primordial waters dragged our home down, down, down into the abyss. And as we stood there assessing the situation, I kid you not, it felt like a movie. As we watched this all falling apart, the ceiling collapsed right in front of us and the entire house was destroyed. Our friends were going to walk away from the purchase. Our aggressive no conditions gamble was about to backfire. I was confident we'd be bankrupt within a few months. That night, my parents drove over to see us and my father embraced me with a hug and I wept and I wept and I wept and I felt like such a loser and such a failure to see all of our plans crumbling right before our eyes. My dad patted me on the back and said, well, it's times like this that you're grateful for insurance. Wait, wait, what? I said, and I looked at him, for what? And he looked at me and said, insurance. You know how when you bought the house, you started paying for insurance every month? And my, my face lit up like Moses seeing the face of God. I was just illuminated. I started screaming, Meg, Meg, calling for my wife somewhere in the house. Meg, insurance, insurance, we have insurance. I had forgotten about insurance. And so in the end, our friends, our beautiful dear friends still agreed to buy the flooded house, which now came with a sizable check from the insurance company. And after a few weeks of being dried out by gigantic industrial fans, they moved in to do their own renovations. The slow work of turning that twisted house into a home once again. And we were able to move into our place and begin our own process of homemaking. And today it's funny to revisit this story because what was once a tragedy has through some sort of alchemy been transformed into a comedy. A few weeks ago some of our dear friends had their house broken into and the thieves trashed the place and stole credit cards and children's toys and it threw them into disorientation and we were talking with them the other night about the break-in and my friend asked if I'd tell him the story again about the flood like I was like an elder sitting around a campfire telling the story of the flood. And uh, he said that laughing at our story of destruction had a strange comfort, as if it was reminding him it's going to be all right. Because we want to control our future and we want to avoid catastrophe, but it just doesn't seem to be the way that things work out. Tragedy has a way of finding us and throwing us in over our head. But perhaps in those times, all you can do is look back at the last time you felt you were drowning and remember that it got you here and here is fine and you're okay and this too shall pass and this too shall become a story and all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well
0: oh that's great to hear about a Julian of Norwich on the podcast I think that's a first many thanks Kevin something similar once happened to me at a friend's house when I banged against the sink and it sent a torrent of water through this brand new recently furnished, painted house. And we watched as this house dissolved in front of our eyes. It was an incredible sight. And that story reminded me so much of that awful event. And as always, we have to think uh, someday we will look back on this and laugh or tell a story at 10 by 9. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're really thankful to everyone who has donated and everyone who joined us for our fundraiser recently when Padraig presented some of his poetry and stories. Some of it is up on our YouTube channel. I'll try to post a little more at some point. OK, it's our third and final story on this podcast and it's from the evergreen Jim Livingstone. And the strange noises you might hear in the background, well that's his elderly dog falling off the settee three times apparently. Oh, and there's some mild swearing, but it's fully justified.
3: I'm not particularly religious, but when I was a child, I was taught to fear God, but more importantly, to fear the priest, a man never ever to be challenged or questioned. Let me tell you about one. It was Thursday, the 12th of June, 1986. I just got home from work early for the exact same reason that thousands of others had, because that night Northern Ireland were to face the great Brazil in the World Cup Finals in Mexico. Now, no one seriously believed that they could actually beat Brazil. The best we hoped was that they would give Brazil a good run for their money, but it was a match not to be missed. The kickoff was at six o'clock. While I grabbed a quick bite to eat, my beautiful wife, Paula, decided to get, I used the word beautiful because you sitting beside me. Uh, my beautiful wife Paula decided to give our three little girls a bath. Excellent timing, I thought. Age six, four and three. They were not at all interested in football and having them upstairs out of the way was therefore perfect. As I settled down to watch the pre-match TV commentary, Paula shepherded the girls up the stairs to the bathroom. That's right, pet. You get yourself comfy for the match. I'll look after your children all by myself. I feared a little for my future after the match. On the TV, the excitement was electric. and My heart was pounding as the referee blew his whistle in the crowd in Mexico roared. As usual, there was a small contingent of Northern Ireland fans at the match. I was always so envious of them. How do those guys do it? Obviously not married, I thought. Anyway, the class of the Brazilians was apparent from the start. Our lads looked cumbersome and slow compared to the grace and speed of the Brazilians. It was a wonderful spectacle to watch and I trembled with anticipation at what lay ahead over the next hour and a half. And Then the doorbell rang. At first I didn't move, but it rang again and I sensed a little bit more insistently this time. I prayed the beautiful Paula would come down and answer it, but it rang a third time, and then she shouted, Jim, for God's sake, get that. I can't leave the girls, they're in the bath. I swore and jumped up, walking backwards out of the room, never losing sight of the TV screen. I looked towards the front door. Shit. Through the glass, I could see the unmistakable figure of our parish priest, Father Maguire. And worse, he could see me and waved a cheery hello. Anyone else I would have happily waved away. But with a lifelong fear of priests, I opened the door. Hello Father, how are you? Do you want Paula? Uh, She's busy with the girl's bath right now, earnestly hoping this would see him off. Ah no, Jim, as you've only just moved into the parish, I thought I should pay you a quick visit to see you and your lovely family. And with that, he walked straight past me into the living room. I slammed the door and ran after him. What a lovely home, Jim. Can I sit here? He pointed to the chair by the TV. I nodded and he plonked himself down. I was just watching the big match, Father. Great night, I I whimpered. Ah, uh, I don't follow the football myself at all. Would you mind switching it off, Jim, so we can talk? I find it very distracting. I gasped, but like a frightened child, I obeyed and turned the set off, hoping I'd only miss a few minutes and be rid of the bugger. But he talked and talked and talked about declining attendances at mass and latecomers and poorly controlled children and Of course, depleted parish funds. Yes, father, Uh aha, yes, father, of course, father, yes, father. My brain was screaming, the match, go away for fuck's sake. But he just prattled on and on. I checked the mantelpiece clock and realized with her that he'd been talking for half an hour. I'd missed most of the first half. My brain was boiling. And then suddenly he clapped his hands. Well, Jim, it was nice to see you. I'm sorry Paul has been busy with the children, but maybe another time I can see the whole family. I'd better get on. Well, I wanted to hug him there and then. I jumped to my feet and smiled. Ah, oh, Father, some other time. Thanks so much for calling. It was lovely to see you. I lied through clenched teeth. I turned to the living room door when it burst open and in came. The beautiful Paula. Ah, <laughs> Father, how are you? It's so good of you to call. Jim, did you get Father a cup of tea? I glared at her and wanted to scream, No, but too late. Father Hanlon beamed, Well, now that would be lovely, Paula. Thank you. And maybe since I'm here, I can meet the wee girls. I saw them at mass and I thought they were just a credit to the both of They were so well behaved. He turned and sat down. I just wanted to cry. The match was now in the second half and she was bloody making them tea. Soon the girls appeared in their pajamas and were introduced to father, who by now was enjoying his second cup of tea along with a buttered scone. I sat in misery, repeatedly checking the clock as Paula chatted away with the priest. There were now only 20 minutes of the match left and eventually the chat dried up. I prayed that now at last he would go and then father spoke. Well. Since I'm here now with all your lovely family, would you like me to bless the house? I jumped to my feet to scream no, but Paula glared at me with a withering look. She turned to Father. Well, Father, that would be just beautiful. That's awfully good of you, thank you. Isn't that right, Jim? She threw another deadly glare in my direction. Yes, of course, Father, I feebly whimpered. The priest gathered us around produced his prayer book and began reciting the most incredibly long prayer of blessing I'd ever heard. I was still furtively checking the clock. The children knelt like little angels beside their mother with hands clasped together in solemn devotion. I was praying a very different and much darker prayer. But at last it was over. Father patted each of the girls on the head, complimented them on their prayerfulness and slowly Oh, so slowly, he moved towards the front door. All the while talking and even promising to come back sometime soon to visit. I fucking have a freezer, I thought. He got into his car and waved as he drove off. Paul and the girls enthusiastically waving back. I sprinted to the living room, turned on the TV, and my heart stopped. The match was over. It's over for God's sake, I cried. I've missed the biggest match this year for that fucking priest. Oh, for God's sake, Jim, scolded Paula. Stop shouting. and Mind your language. You'll frighten the girls. You know, for God's sake, the match will be on later, on match of the day. None of us even knows the score. And of course she was right. My pain and frustration began to subside, just a little. Only a couple of hours to wait. Avoid the TV news. And soon I would see the magic of Brazil against Northern Ireland. I relaxed into my chair. Thank you, love, I called to the beautiful Paula. Thank you for keeping me sane. And the phone rang. I picked it up. It was my mother. Well, son, wasn't that a fantastic match? And didn't Northern play so well? I tried to interrupt. she persisted. But I think Brazil were just too good for them. 3-0 was a fair score, don't you think, son? She didn't forgive me for quite a while for the profanity that exploded from my lips just then. Sadly, I didn't fear her as much as that bloody priest.
0: I told you the swearing was justified. You gotta love the tone deaf parish priest. Thanks so much, Jim. And we will leave you with that for now. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed, and published by Paul Doran, so I'm to blame. I'll be back with another podcast soon, but for now, bye bye. <laughs>